1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets
1: Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, in the wall of worry, we've got uh, slowing growth, rising interest rates, um, and valuation are some concerns now you have geopolitical risk to add into the uh, um, the whole panoply of issues for this market to navigate let's check in on the economic outlook underpinning all of this we can do that with pete earl he's the economist at the american institute of economic research pete has your economic outlook changed at all given what we've seen coming out of ukraine over the last week or so
3: good morning gentlemen good to talk to you it's great to be back um yeah, it, it certainly has. Um, when we last spoke in October or November or so in 2021, we had oil rent in West Texas between, say, 55 and $70 a barrel, 75 maybe. Consumer demand was high, uh, but it was being blunted a bit, we think, by supply chain pressures. And inflation was running about five percent, and I seem to recall that I mentioned that the ugliest word in economics, which is stagflation, was back. But I, I didn't think it was a, a, a word. I, I didn't think it was a really a reasonable concern because there was certainly had inflation, but there was no real stagnation happening. And um, I think at this point uh, we, we pivoted, and uh, the last two weeks, and perhaps the last few days, things have changed quite a bit. Uh, we see. Commodities across the board rising pretty precipitously. Even with COVID slipping to the back burner now, we have consumer sentiment falling. It fell in January. Consumer confidence fell a bit in February. And there's a host of other signs uh, that uh, we may we may actually see rising inflation, rising general price level with slowing growth. There's a few other issues embedded in there, but the answer is yes. I do think we are turning a corner here.
2: Do we need um, the Fed, though, to – Well, is the market going to rethink whether the Fed hikes six, seven, eight times this year? Even if we're looking at rising prices, um, they're not rising for any reason the Fed can put a stop to other than demand. So the only way the Fed can really slow um, inflation is by slowing economic growth.
3: Yeah, so... I think as they are. I think all the talk about a hundred seventy-five fifty 50 basis point moves are completely off the table, certainly for March. Um, I don't think the Fed will move any greater than, say, 25 beeps this year. But I will go out on a limb and say that when James Bullard of the St. Louis Fed said he would like to see rates 100 basis points higher by July – I don't think that will happen, but I do think he was sort of paving the way for unconventional, not unconventional, but unusual monetary policy measures. So what I see are maybe not seven or eight uh, uh, hikes of 25 basis points this year, but I see uh, a heightened possibility of intra-meeting hikes, for example, between the FOMC meetings such as we haven't seen since uh, 2008 or so and before that since uh, long-term capital collapsed.
1: Supply chain, that's another economic issue that has been with us as a result of this pandemic. Um, you know, initially we thought it would be relatively short term, but here we are beginning year three here. How do you think about the global supply chain and gee, maybe the the events in Ukraine may exacerbate some of those issues, but how do you think about that as you think about your economic outlook?
3: Uh, it's, it's, it's complicated because I, I see some signs that the supply chain uh, morass is actually easing. Um, World container rates have leveled off, uh, the Baltic exchange dry index is half of what it was in October, although it's up a little bit on the Ukraine uh, uh, conflict, and the cash freight index is at levels we haven't seen since the start of the pandemic. Um, even at uh, the Port of Los Angeles, which has sort of been the focal point, um, the number of containers, sh- and, and, and by the way, the counting convention was changed, so we have to bear that in mind, but even so, the number of container ships is down to the 70s from well over 100 just six or eight weeks ago. So, the component in the rise of prices that I think we impute to um, uh, supply chain issues, I think, is starting to 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 um, to sort of dissipate. However, kicking a number of Russian institu- institutions off of SWIFT um, introduces entirely new issues. Uh, we could very easily see. Uh, new supply chain issues or, or I should say new price pressures owing to scarcity arise uh, as a result of kicking a bunch of those institutions that deal in, say oil, natural gas and grains off of Swift. So uh, it could be exit frying pan enter fire. Um,
2: <clears throat> I wonder what I wonder what happens now in Europe as a result of I mean, do they need to stop, buying gas, oil, aluminum from Vladimir Putin, are they going to have to do that? And then what happens to their economy?
3: For for some amount of time, they may have to. But I think we are at a point right now where um, we will see uh, um, a, a real gut check of ideology where many nations are buying from, from certain resources, especially um, carbon-based uh, uh Energies and uh, and petroleum and things like that from nations uh, because they don't want to do it at home uh, mm. because of the the green wave we've seen. But I think um, this this incident, especially if it drives prices sizably higher, but we're still only looking at you know, $95 oil, if we get prices 110 120 per barrel, that sort of thing in the next few months, uh, we may see a real reconsideration of the ideologies which led many nations to pursue more costly and in some cases less tested green energy at the cost of, uh, of right. ignoring yeah. or avoiding.
1: Okay. Hey, Pete, thanks so much That's for uh, joining us, taking the time. We appreciate it. Pete Earle, economist at the American Institute of Economic Research, giving us his outlook. Take a look at Bitcoin,
0: up 10%
1: trading today, 41,200, up 10.1%, so a huge move there uh, for Bitcoin. I'll call that out for for Tom Keene. All right, (laughs) let's talk commodities, guys. I have my GLCO screen up, global commodity screen on the Bloomberg terminal. All of energy, higher, metals, higher most of the big ags higher wheat soybeans cotton higher so commodities definitely moving higher we want to get a sense of kind of what's moving in this market so we turn to everett millman chief market analyst at gainesville coins everett what's your call across commodities here at a time when we have rising geopolitical tensions uh, in eastern europe
4: Right. Well, it appears that gold has certainly held up its bona fides as a safe haven asset. Um, It has certainly rallied amid all this conflict. But also the economic sanctions that the West is imposing on Russia um, will almost certainly drive up the prices for many of these other major commodities. Um, Even though the Russian economy makes up less than 2% of global GDP, they are one of the largest exporters of a lot of these really important commodities like nickel, nickel aluminum, cobalt, um, as you mentioned, obviously, the key energy commodities like oil and natural gas. The fact that energy is rising is just going to make it more expensive to get all of those resources out of the ground. And even agricultural commodities. Russia exports more than 10 percent of the world's fertilizer. They're a major exporter of grains like wheat and barley. So everything in the commodity space is really connected to this, and, and we should expect to see higher prices going forward.
5: So what's the margin, or what are we really waiting for for a reversal of this? Is this purely on geopolitical tensions? Because these prices, these commodities, they were rising before the Russian invasion, before the onset of the geopolitical risk. What are we watching for, for reversal of some of the action? Do we have to wait for demand destruction?
4: I think so. I mean, that's an excellent point, that prices were already rising. We were already dealing with elevated inflation. I think the real reversal possibility would be a de-escalation of this proposal to ban Russia from the SWIFT system. I think that is a very potent um, sanction. And really, the direction of how long this goes on, all the disruptions in markets, I think will be based mainly on that, if the West continues to be that aggressive with sanctions.
1: All right, let's, given this environment, given this backdrop here, Everett, what are the two or three most common calls you're having with your clients? What are you telling them where are you telling them to be exposed here?
4: Well, obviously, gold, it's always a a safe place during uncertain times like this, especially given that uh, the Russian ruble has been tumbling. So that may force the Russian central bank to liquidate some of its gold, its large stockpile of gold in order to support its foreign exchange value. Um, I'm also looking at platinum and palladium, Um, Russia is far and away the world's number one exporter of palladium and on an annual basis. It's somewhere between 20 percent and 40 percent of the global supply. So if there is more difficulty in getting palladium out of Russia and it being one of the only sources, um, that is certainly uh, an area that investors are going to want to be exposed to because really the the path of least resistance is for palladium prices to continue to climb um, due to that supply shortfall we could see
5: you mentioned gold in particular this is interesting to me i've been saying this all morning the fact that gold and the dollar are up higher together that's usually a sign of very very acute stress talk to us a little bit about what turns gold around in particular if you continue to see it i mean gold after the end of the day it's priced in dollars so does the currency mean nothing right now for the metal or is this purely a matter of haven demand
4: I think it really is haven demand, and only in these extremely uh, high-stress times do we see that both the dollar and gold and and the Japanese yen would all be rallying at the same time. Um, I think that the, the, the major kind of pivot point here between gold and the dollar is whether or not we're going to get any kind of quick relief or de-escalation or for diplomacy to prevail here because until then there really is no reason for investors to to uh sell their safe havens to get out of those assets they really are the only game in town in terms of uh weathering the uncertainty um gold is always good across borders so there is even as i mentioned before with russia possibly selling its gold there is some evidence that uh gold bars minted in russia have been ending up in vaults in london So there's already some indication that perhaps uh, we will see gold used in international trade or um, to to bolster uh, the Russian central bank's foreign reserves.
1: Everett Millman, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your take on the commodities market. Everett Millman, chief market analyst at Gainesville Coins. Right now, let's switch over to the markets, the market outlook Uh, Lots of bricks in that wall of worry now we have to include geopolitical risk uh, and the markets are trying to digest that we have markets uh, mixed today off the bottoms but again investors are trying to get a sense of how they price this out let's check in with Brett Ewing chief market strategist for first Franklin financial services Brett thanks so much for joining us here kind of what are you telling your clients here over the last five days.
6: Well, first, thanks for having me on today. Um, yes, there's been a lot of turmoil, a lot of concern out there in the recent weeks with the volatility in the markets, and certainly our clients are talking to us and wanting some insight, and what we're trying to convey to them is we are still put the Fed as one of the biggest risk into the, the markets for 2022, and we're also guiding them to look a little out past these geopolitical risks, and you can go back over the last 80 years And really look at every geopolitical event, and it's really a short run phenomenon in the market, meaning that the average drawdown is around about 4.5% with a recovery rate around 42 days. So an event like that, we're trying to look past that and look out over the next 18 months, really. And so what we're doing here is positioning, we're taking advantage of this volatility and specifically looking at the small and mid-cap sectors.
5: So talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you you said that you want to look past the geopolitical tensions, but isn't there a commodity read-through that then kind of hits essentially the American recovery story? Is that perhaps worth making a bigger deal of over the Fed?
6: Well, I think the commodity spikes that we're seeing right here are most likely going to be short-lived. I think that when we look at the oil markets right here, of course, it's all it's reaching multi-year highs. Um, again, we think it's closer to the peak than it than it um, than most people realize. Um, as a matter of fact, last week we actually sold a lot of our oil stocks into the strength, and we just feel there's on a relative basis there's a lot better asset classes that have just been decimated whether it's growth tech or other small mid-cap stocks out there. So we feel there's better places to park that capital going forward.
1: All right, let's talk about tech because a lot of folks have, uh, you know, over the last 12 months as as the rotation trade has worked so well, they've been kind of rotating out of some of those big tech names. Now you get some folks saying, hey, I like tech, just I need the tech that actually makes money. Um, as opposed to some of the more high-flying revenue growth stories. How do you think about tech and allocating capital there?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, 2022 is going to be a stock picker's year. There's a lot of great technology companies that have, you know, it's the baby with the bathwater syndrome here, Uh, just been thrown out and decimated here in the short run. But we're taking advantage of that. I think there's a lot of great opportunities within tech. There's a lot of tech companies out there that have, wonderful moats around their business model. And those are the areas that I would be um, advising people to take advantage of.
5: Talk to us a little bit about uh, perhaps the value rotation. I think a lot of people started off 2022 thinking was going to be kind of a continuation of what we started off in 2021. And yet, it doesn't seem like that strong kind of conviction essentially for value at the start of the year has really persisted in the last six weeks or so do you think it can really revive itself
6: i think there's there's certainly a few areas within value that i would we would continue to look at um i do think that the areas that i feel have a lot of upside is more of an asset class story within the small and mid cap uh stocks the valuation on those asset classes is the spread between large cap and small and mid-cap right here is, those, is the widest dating back 20 years.
1: Hmm, okay, if You
6: have to go back to 2001. Um, typically, the small and mid-cap areas yep. of the market are, are, you know, their 4P is well above the large cap. Right. And right now, it's quite the opposite.
1: All right, Brett. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. We appreciate your time. Brett Ewing, Chief Market Strategist for First Franklin Financial Services. Let's get the latest here on some of these sanctions. I'm going to really focus on what we're seeing from the global banking system and the impact that may have on Russia. Shanali Basik, Wall Street reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Shanali, can you help me here? Just tell me what SWIFT is and why it's important.
7: Yeah. Well, it is a cooperative that serves as a global messaging system to the global financial system. So that's more than 11,000 entities across more than 200 countries. And it's governed by the G10 banks and incorporated in Belgium. So when the globe comes together and say they want to ban Russia from SWIFT, what you really saw at the end of the day is the U.S. announced moves and other countries announced moves to really cut off a number of Russian banks and entities from that payment system. Here's the thing, Paul. There's a lot of questions around what the ultimate impact of this will be. The reason that a lot of countries di- were, were opposing this, Germany in particular was uncertain of doing this for at the beginning, is because if you cut off payments, then all of a sudden do you start to make it very difficult to make transfers among energy companies and counterparts, for example. Will it have an impact that uh, has a backlash on the energy trade between Russia and, Ger- uh, Russia and Germany? And really what is the ultimate economic impact on the countries that are pushing the ban themselves.
5: So let me just dumb this down for me um, because I, I really need it. My understanding of this system is, is kind of like i guess the only way i can describe it is back in high school when i worked for the high school newspaper we had a rule that when you send an email you have to send a got it email back the idea that you have (laughs) confirmation right and that's the way i think of about the system right it's a payment confirmation system that essentially if you don't get that confirmation that payment isn't necessarily being delivered in a kind of trustworthy way. Am I getting that well, right? Well, here's
7: the thing. Ultimately, it doesn't control the payments. You're right. It only oversees the messaging. And by the way, it's not really let to go into the messaging. Right. But any bank and any entity that's involved in the system, being able to store those messages and track those messages helps those banks comply with sanctions rules which is why swift is important even in an era of sanctions one of the things that people worry about and remember since 2014 Russia and China did try to create alternatives it didn't really take off to such a massive degree but can Russia and China create bigger alternatives to swift that was one concern but the reality is this is the central this is the central way to communicate across banks across the world so So even if they left this and an alternate system is being made, then how do you transact with the normal global financial system as you know it? Right. It is a little bit meta. All right. So,
2: yeah,
1: I I guess the way I'm thinking about it, it's just going to make it much more difficult for Russia to do business and it's putting increasing the pressure on them. Um, Another thing, another angle I wanted to get your, your sense from is like the JP Morgan's of the world, the Bank of America, these big global, the cities, these big global institutions. What are they saying about their business in Russia, with Russia, all that kind of thing?
7: So remember, again, since 2014, when there were more restrictions kind of imposed over time, a lot of banks have really stepped back. So most U.S. banks don't have a meaningful exposure in Russia, which is why those sanctions on those Russian banks themselves is so important. Suburbank and uh, VTB are 50 percent of the country's global assets. And then, you know, all of the five banks combined are like 75 percent. So if you take Citigroup, it's like a couple of billion dollars of exposure of assets in Russia uh, not meaningful to the bank itself uh, but with that said remember how entwined the global financial system is Citigroup and JP Morgan are big global transaction banks right which means they're effectively the banker to other banks that help these payments from one country to another happen so what we're hearing right now is a lot of bankers in talks with the Treasury Department to figure out what the actual rules are because that has not been made clear to the bankers themselves yet and so now all these banks basically have to to figure out how to entangle entangle themselves from any transactions that may involve any of these sanctions entities. And remember, there are many now.
5: Well, let's talk about the energy piece of this, right? Because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there was discussion among the White House about how you actually kind of separate the energy payments from the entire uh, metric, and one of them was simply uh, you can have them denoted or have some sort of marker, um, which is having me give me horrible biology DNA flashbacks. Um, but the other piece was if they're all kind of going through one bank, can you just target that one bank? Uh, any update on how they're going to target the energy piece of it?
7: Well, that's the big question here, right? If they wanted to target the energy sector, why don't they just target the energy sector? Why is this all being done through financial mechanisms? Interestingly, uh, and just as important, it, and I'm sure you guys have been talking about it, is the ban- with the central bank, the Russian central bank. So if you're going to target Russia's economy, right now the way they are doing it is absolutely by targeting Russia's financial infrastructure and they're doing almost every means to do that and do it effectively. But if you're going to target the energy system, then why don't you just do that by means of the companies and the people that own them? I think that's the next leg of this story that has a lot of big question marks that are rolling, um, rolling into it.
1: Yeah. Interesting. It's far and wide. It's been a weekend where just sanctions and, you know, pulled business out of Russia and just it's just incredible news flow, and continues today. And I'll point out there is a Bloomberg editorial written by the editorial board on the terminal entitled Wielding Swift Against Russian Banks is a Big Risk. Um, and it's a great explainer for how Swift works in the real world uh, and how there could be some negative repercussions Um by uh, denying SWIFT to uh, the entire Russian economy. So I recommend that. Shanali Basik, Wall Street reporter, Bloomberg News, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, she does every Monday, giving us
2: the latest from Wall Street, which is her beat. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
1: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
4: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move.